Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live episode of the Ostrom Update, COVID-19, a podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. I'm your host, Chris Dahl, and over the next hour, I'll be posing your questions about the COVID-19 pandemic to Dr. Ostrom. If you haven't already, you can send your questions to us on Twitter using the hashtag Ostrom Update Live. We'll start this episode of the Ostrom Update as we usually do, with Dr. Ostrom's welcome and dedication and his views on the current state of the pandemic. Then we'll start taking your questions and we'll try to get to as many as possible. So Mike, your opening thoughts on this, our third live episode of the Ostrom Update. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you to all of you who are all listening live right now. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to all of those who'll be listening in the days ahead. We know that thousands of people ultimately listen to this podcast. We want to thank you very much for being here, as I say every week with uh, real sincerity, as we know you have many, many choices to get your information on COVID-19, and we just appreciate you being with us and being part of this podcast family, which it truly has become over the past year. Uh, At this point, let me just say that uh, it's been a journey. Uh, A little over a year ago, uh, Maya Peters, who many of you know from uh, uh, her work with this podcast, as well as Corey Anderson, convince this old guy here that he needed to think about upgrading his communication activities as related to the uh, pandemic. For years, as many of you know who have followed this podcast, letters have been a very important part of my life, often handwritten. And then, of course, I did emerge into the new modern world of email. And uh, as the days that uh, sometimes I, I wish I hadn't, but in fact, I got there. But they were about to convince me that the only way I could really communicate and uh, hear from all of you would be via a podcast. And I didn't even know really what they were talking about. And it was just a little over a year ago, March 10th of 2020, that they were able to secure a spot for me on the Joe Rogan podcast, March 10th, 2020, of which I uh, did do that podcast. And it was a remarkable experience to know that ultimately over 15 million people downloaded that particular podcast. At that point, as some of you know, we were already well into our work with the pandemic, having stated on January 20th that we thought that this was going to be the next global pandemic. And I even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on on February uh, 22nd, stating the very same case. So by the time we got to March, uh, there was a sense on our part that uh, what are we waiting for? We've got to move on and get ready to do that. I share with you a perspective tonight because it helps set not just the tone of where we've been over the past year, but where are we going in the future? On the Joe Rogan podcast on March 10th, I stated that I believe that there could be upwards of 480,000 deaths associated with this pandemic. At that time, that was not only seem extreme, but many would consider it to have been irresponsible to scare people so badly. As many of you know, today we're actually at 543,000 deaths in this country, uh, far exceeding even what I had stated. 
I also stated that we'd be in this for many, many months, that in fact, it was not going to be uh, just a few months and then we'd be out of it like people thought Ebola or other kinds of national, international public health issues were. And as you know, here we sit uh, some 12 months later and we're still there. So tonight I'm gonna share with you again, a sense of the future. As Mark Twain, or at least it was attributed to him once said, it's difficult to make predictions, particularly about the future. And I think that's what we have owed you from the beginning, is an attempt to basically not talk about just today or next week, but where is this going? What is it going to look like? And how can we respond to that in such a way that it means we can protect our families, ourselves, and we can move forward in what has been a very, very difficult, tragic year. I make absolutely no excuses for the fact that we all can do better. In public health, I, others, my colleagues could do better. And we're learning, I think, how to do better. And tonight, I hope that as we have this discussion, you'll see we're trying to learn and do better. As I've said to you many times, uh, you know, ask people where they get their information, what data do they have to make certain statements, and you know, check it out. I don't care who it is, including me. And tonight, that will be no different. Let me just uh, kind of put a footnote into all of this, is that uh, tonight we'll mark our 52nd podcast. We've had 48 regular podcasts, three special ones, two live ones, one in August and one in October. And then on June 3rd, we actually did one on masks and science. And I went back this past week and listened to that and it's remarkable, the nuancing we were trying to share with you back in June of last year is still very, very much a, a very safe and, and a real recommendation for what we need to do today. So today is our 52nd podcast, as I said, and we'll keep doing these until this pandemic is done. Uh, we'll be here. We are so fortunate to have you here with us. The communications we get from you is so remarkable. Uh, it, it becomes almost a full-time job just reading the incoming mail, and we love it. So please don't stop. And it's in that regard I make the dedication tonight. That dedication is to you. We're dedicating this podcast to all the listeners. The people who become part of the Update Podcast family. And I say that with real honor and real sincerity. Thank you for what you do to stay with us. Now, if you're a podcast family member, you know no introduction is complete without a little comment about light. Um, it's getting better. Now, we're not meeting one week after our last podcast. Obviously, we post on Thursday mornings today. Uh, here, we're a little early relative to the podcast, so we're not quite at a seven-day mark. But today, the podcast uh, here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, not the rest of the world, but here, we will have 12 hours and 19 uh, minutes and 52 seconds of daylight. What a remarkable change. That is, in fact, uh, a, a, an increase of 15 minutes and 45 seconds since last week. And so uh, we're excited to continue to see the light coming. Uh, it's going to only get better and better. For our friends, colleagues, and family members in the Southern Hemisphere, as I say each week, we're sending light to you. And in a couple months, uh, unfortunately, we're going to need you to help work with us. So, but um, hang in there. The light's coming, and uh, we're we're very excited about that. So, let me just conclude by saying at this point, thank you again so much for being here, and um, let's get on with the show, Chris. 
So, Mike, as you noted, it's been a year since we started this podcast, uh, and we're in a, a very different place than we were during our two previous live episodes, which were in the summer and the fall. So the U.S. is now averaging around 53,000 new COVID-19 cases a day. The vaccine rollout is continues to pick up steam, but we've essentially hit a plateau after several weeks of significant declines, and many parts of the country are, opening, are loosening restri- restrictions. Meanwhile, there's a variant-fueled surge in Europe. So what does the current situation in Europe tell us about what we could see in coming weeks here in the United States? Well, let me just uh, share right now that we're really in a tale of two cities kind of environment. Uh, The first city, which is the optimism with the reduction in cases, which has been real uh, in a major way since January. And we have vaccine rolling out, a vaccine that is highly effective. Uh, against uh, most of the strains of this particular virus that we're dealing with. In fact, so let me cover a little bit about the tale of the good city and then uh, add some perspective. As you pointed out, we have had a remarkable rollout of vaccine. Remember, it was uh, uh, 50 days ago that the president indicated he wanted to have 100 million doses administered in the first 100 days, and we're already at 128 million doses. And that is great news. To date, 25.3% of the U.S. population has received one dose. 13.7% have received the full two doses. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the single dose, has only limited distribution. So we haven't had uh, so many there as to really make a difference in terms of the number of people vaccinated. When we look at it right now, uh, by age, uh, a category that is of real A priority for me, not just because I'm in it, but because as an epidemiologist, I look at what is it that causes serious disease, hospitalizations, and death, and that's age. And if you look to date, uh, 69.8% of those 65 years of age and older have had one dose, and only 43% are fully vaccinated. That means right now that we have upwards of 17.5 to 18 million people 65 years of age and older have not had a dose of vaccine yet. Now, why that's important is because it's basically stalled out. We were at 68% 10 days ago, and now today we're at 69%. And this is a critical, critical group as we talk about uh, the future cases occurring and how this might impact on us. So while we're using uh, providing 2.5 million doses of vaccine a day, Uh, please don't forget that really represents 1.25 million people being vaccinated because with two doses, of course, uh, while we are vaccinating 2.5 million people a day, half of those are people getting their second dose. So yeah, the vaccine is good news, but we're far, far, far at this point from achieving the kind of protection that we need to really have a population-based impact on transmission. I can't urge you more strongly than to get your vaccine if, in fact, you have the uh, ability to do so. Get it. As far as new cases and what's happening here, as I've shared with you in this podcast before, remember that that big peak we saw in January, no one can tell you exactly why that happened. Why did it go up so dramatically and why did it come down so dramatically? I see many of my colleagues will say it's seasonality. They'll say it's because of prevention activities we're taking and none of those are absolutely true at all. Um, when you look at the seasonality, the, country, the states that contributed to most uh, significantly to that January uh, peak 
were from the southern Sunbelt states, from Southern California to Georgia. And they were the same states that contributed in the cases in July to the big peak there. If you look at the different hemispheres, northern and southern hemisphere, you'll see, again, there's no evidence of seasonality. I only point this out to you because, as I've said multiple times, we need to understand what mitigation strategies or approaches we can take to have an impact on these cases. And when we saw a peak like we saw, there's no question in my mind that the activities we took to reduce the height of that peak were critical, the kinds of things we did in mitigation, uh, the, the somewhat temporary lockdowns that we saw, uh, a term that, again, I realize for many people is like drinking barbed wire. But nonetheless, it's very important. And right now, it's important we maintain that kind of, of uh, activity in terms of mitigation, even though it appears the cases are down, because I can tell you they will come back. If we look at just what's happening on the seven-day rolling average in the United States, cases have come down, we're all feeling good about it, like somehow we're in control. Remember, we are not driving this tiger, we are riding it. If you look at the number of cases and the seven-day rolling average, uh, there's been a 1.8% increase in new cases as of yesterday. That was compared to the previous seven-day rolling average a week ago, 9.5% decrease in cases. So almost a 10.5% turnaround just in the last week. If you look at testing, uh, the number of tests completed, about 360 million tests completed, uh, down from what we were testing as we were in the height of the uh, activity in December, January. But what's important is the positive rate is now at 4.7%. A week ago, it was at 3.3%. The positive rate has turned around. Now, hospitalizations and deaths continue to drop. That's good news. But we know that those are lagging indicators. And as lagging indicators, we know that they don't turn up for weeks after activity itself turns up. I would say right now, we are on the verge of seeing that, that potentially very serious uptake in cases. If we look at the B117 variant, something we've talked about many times here, this is the variant originally discovered in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's one that's been associated with uh, anywhere from 50 to 70% more infectiousness, uh, also associated with 50% or more increase in serious illness, and now Im impacting on all ages, from young children all the way through to uh, the elderly frail. And when we look at what's happened with B117 in the U.S., just as it's happening around the world, the numbers have continued to increase as a part of the number of, of viruses circulated in the United States. CDC is reporting as of March 21st, 6,390 cases have been confirmed in 51 jurisdictions. Just mind you, that's up from 4,690 a week before. So an increase almost of 1,400 cases in just one week. Now I would uh, agree that we're still flying blind uh, and in, in a very real way, uh, this shouldn't be reflective of what has actually happened with B117. I think it's actually much more significant than even our lack of, uh, of, of proactive sequencing on a, on a major scale is providing us. If we look, however, though, what's happening, let me just give you some examples of areas to look at. Remember, we've talked all along about the regionalization of cases in the United States, and I, for the life of me, can't tell you why that's happening. And anybody that can, again, be very careful about what they're providing you, ask them for why, their database. 
As you may recall, the upper Midwest actually had an increase in cases around Memorial Day of last year. And then we saw activity drop precipitously in July, August, only to start up again in October. And our peak in November in this country was largely made up of the North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, those states there. And then that peak dropped substantially before we saw the Southern states again, turn on fire a second time. Well, if we look at this same kind of geographic pattern right now, in the upper Midwest, if we look at five particular states, Michigan, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wisconsin, it's interesting. If you look at vaccination rates, if we have anywhere from percentage-wise of 14 to almost 19% of the population fully vaccinated, and if you look at uh, uh, what's happening in terms of these states, uh, in terms of doses administered, it's really quite remarkable. Yet, if you look at the actual cases and look at the seven-day increase in Michigan, a 47% increase in cases, Minnesota, 22% increase in cases, South Dakota, 26% increase in cases, North Dakota, 12% increase in cases, and Wisconsin, 6%. This looks all far too familiar of what we saw last fall, early winter. If you look at the Northeast, again, five states there, same thing. If you look at the fully vaccinated population, it's 14 to almost 18% of the population with substantial number of people having single doses. Yet, if you look at Connecticut, 15% increase in cases in the last seven days, New York, 13% increase, New Jersey, 6% increase, Massachusetts, 12% increase, Maryland, 11% increase. Again, a regional uptick that's of real concern. If we look at the seven-day moving averages for cases, in other words, if you pick any one day, any variability could really affect that, whether it's how many cases get reported, what kind of testing was done, et cetera. But if you look at the rolling seven-day average, we have been looking at that every Monday for the past few weeks in this country. Three weeks ago, 14 states out of the 50 states in the District of Columbia reported seven-day moving average increase in cases. The others were either level or decreasing, 14. Two weeks ago, that was 21. Last week, it was 24. This Monday, it was 27. These are all should be trends that should concern us greatly as to what's happening, particularly as we see this overlay of the B117 about to uh, actually uh, spread even faster and further. If we look at what's happening in Europe and try to understand what does that mean for what might happen here, you've heard me time and time again on this podcast talk about this particular variant spreading wild, widely in parts of Europe. Let me just say, I think uh, Chancellor uh, Merkel said it very well yesterday from Germany. This I quote yesterday, basically in a new pandemic because of B117 its characteristics. That's what she said. They have seen uh, a, a, the rate of increase substantially uh, there in Germany. Um, it was 10.2 cases per day in Germany last week. This week it's at 13.3 and rising. They are in an extended period of lockdown with strict lockdown over the Easter weekend. The prevalence of B117 is over 75% of the cases. They have 
an active vaccination program going on, although not as significant as the US. Same thing is true for France. If you look at what's happening here, they have gone up from 24.1 thousand cases, 24,000 cases a day last week. This week is a 31.5 thousand cases. Estimated there again, B117 is over 75% of the cases. Poland, the previous high in mid-November at their peak was 25.5 thousand. Today, the seven-day average is 22,000 cases, up from 16,000 cases just the week before. The B117 prevalence there is 80% of cases. As you can see in Europe, and I could go through country by country, they are writing the script for us. The one exception, and there is a major exception that we have to note, besides the vaccine, which we are surely doing a better job in this country, we are the one country in the world that's opening up faster than ice melting in a sauna. It's crazy. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's what we want. I understand the, the, the issues around how horrible it has been to live with this pandemic, how we want to get back to normal, how the case data should tell us it's okay to get back to normal, how if you're an elected official, how hard it is to anticipate this kind of situation when all the numbers seem to be in the right direction and the situation is vaccines coming. But vaccine isn't coming fast enough. It's not. We're not going to see a big expansion of vaccine availability for at least weeks yet. We will, eventually we will. And I think this summer is going to be, you know, a very wonderful time that way, but we're a ways off. B117 is here. These numbers are beginning to rise. And it's, I feel like it's a deja vu all over again moment. And while we surely have people protected, remember that we still have at least 50 to 55% of our country's population who have neither had COVID-19 and have any residual protection from natural infection or who have been vaccinated. With all the pain and suffering and all the cases we've had, all the efforts to vaccinate the population, we still have over half the population susceptible to this virus. And now we're beginning to see because, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, younger age populations, including young adults into middle-aged adults, have a higher proportion having serious illness if we look at what's happened in Europe. And that even includes younger children. So I think the message here to share with you, Chris, is that this is the tale of the other city. I understand the enthusiasm for why things are getting better. I understand why people wanna loosen up everything, but we are creating the perfect storm moment. If Europe is having this many challenges with B117, and they have roughly the same number of people that have been infected over time as we've had. They are not as far along in vaccine, but not far when you think of only 15% of our population being vaccinated anyway. And look what's happening there. So I would leave it tonight by saying that, please, for the people on this podcast, you do not want to be the person who dies five days before they were scheduled to get their vaccine. You don't want to be. If we can get through this increase in cases, this surge, I really believe that we, in fact, will have a much better chance with this B117 and vaccine availability to actually be very effective against it. But for now, we're entering a period, I think, of heightened vulnerability. 
unlike maybe anything we've had in the pandemic to date in this country. So I would leave it with that. And I know that's not the news people want to hear, but it's the news you have to hear. And, uh, you know, this is part of the future. This is part of looking at where we're going. This is part of understanding what we can do to protect our loved ones. You know, we're not asking right now for months and months, but we're asking to people to say, if you haven't been vaccinated and you do not, you do not want to put yourself in harm's way. So Mike, this leads me to our first question from Twitter. Gopher fan asks, have you downgraded your category five hurricane warning yet? Uh, well, first of all, let me just be really clear when I'm talking about this hurricane phenomena. It applies to the United States, but it applies to the world. And when we talk about the pandemic, one of the challenges that I keep seeing us having is, in fact, what's happening worldwide. And what does that mean? Because the pandemic is not just in the United States. And if you look at what's happening here, I am convinced we're going to see this big uptick in cases. How big it will get, I don't know. But on a worldwide basis, we're still primed for a Category 5 hurricane. Let me just share with you, again, a sense of perspective. As of today, there have been 123,400,000 cases reported worldwide. Now, we know that's a major underestimation or reporting of actual number of cases. There have been 2,719,000 deaths. But if you look at the relative proportion of reporting of cases, on January 4th, when the cases peaked worldwide, we actually saw it that day that these are weekly numbers, by the way, March 23rd today is for the last week. On January 4th, for the previous seven days, there were 5,049,229 cases reported, 905,000 deaths. Then the cases dropped off globally, just like they did in the United States. Hard to imagine seasonality if that's the case in terms of many parts of the world. On February 15th, for the week prior to that, there were 2,491,000 cases. So compare that to the 5,049,000 cases before. There were 274,000 deaths. Compare that to the 905,000 in the January 4th week. Big drop, major drops in transmission and cases. But March 15th, we are now at 3,316,000 cases and 266,000 deaths for the week prior to March 15th. We're coming back up. We've gained eight, almost 825,000 cases since the low point in February. The last four weeks, we've had consecutive increases in cases globally. And if you look what's happening in Asia, you look what's happening in Europe, you look what's happening in Africa, you look what's happening in the Americas, you can see what we're up against. Throughout the last week, almost 10 days now, COVID-19 has been the number one cause of death in the Americas. Last week, it was accounting for a third of all the deaths in the Americas, a third. So, when I talk about the pandemic and this, this uh, you know, category five, this is coming back and we're not gonna have vaccine for the world. This pandemic is not done with us yet. And I worry that people are very parochial in their views thinking that, well, this pandemic isn't a problem in my house anymore, in my neighborhood or my workplace. And that may very well be true. If you have a sizable number of people vaccinated, 
But as I have stated repeatedly on this podcast, and as I wrote about in a foreign affairs article two weeks ago, what I worry about desperately is what's going to happen in low and middle income countries over the course of the next year to two years. Transmission will continue largely unfettered. We at best have right now potential to maybe vaccinate 20% of the low and middle income countries over the upcoming months. If you want to look at variants, they're going to come spinning out that are going to have an impact potentially on our vaccine efficacy. That's the place you need to look. That's where they're going to come from. So even trying for us to get through this pandemic, even if we you know, were to take all the vaccine in the world and hoard it for ourselves, we're still vulnerable if we see these variants that may, uh, in fact, challenge vaccine uh, efficacy. This is going to be a problem. So I still stand by it. The fact that I think globally this pandemic is far from over and it surely still could be a Category 5 hurricane. This, this dip we saw in cases from January to February to now is not going to continue. Vaccine is only going to have a very limited impact globally. And what we're seeing now with the spread of the variants, uh, with increased uh, transmission, increased serious illness, and a broader spectrum of the population, I think we have a challenge ahead of us. And uh, this is something that uh, you know we can't just ignore uh, from our country standpoint. One of the things some of us are working on very, very hard is to try to make sure we get vaccine to the low and middle income countries. It's not just a humanitarian issue right now. It is that but it's more. It's about strategically protecting the vaccines that we do have uh, for the months and years ahead. So, Mike, we do have a few questions on vaccines, but before we get to those, I just want to ask you briefly to touch on uh, the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine, because it's been in the news a lot in the past weeks, Uh, from the concern over blood clots among European vaccine recipients to some encouraging US phase three trial data that was released this week, but is now being questioned. Um, What should people make of all this news about the AstraZeneca vaccine? Oh my, Um, you know, in a a modern era of vaccinology with uh, large pharmaceutical companies who are very experienced at dealing with the study of, the evaluation of, the approval of, the distribution of vaccines. Um, It's hard to imagine a company, even as with their academic partner, Oxford, could stumble and and commit as many unforced errors as they have done. Whether it was about the uh, accidental dosing issue that occurred uh, early in their studies, Uh, whether it's been the debates with the European Union and availability, whether it's been challenges to just how well the vaccine works. Uh, The issue, I think, with the blood clots was a very unfortunate one in that uh, uh, at this point, the data surely uh, don't support a major problem with that. Uh, In fact, it likely reflects background, although we have to keep an open mind to that and pharmacovigilance for the study of these vaccines is very, very important to make sure that if there is a signal there, we catch it. But uh, as I've pointed out uh, last week, and I'll point out again, we would expect to see in the United States on any one given day, the number of people vaccinated, 10 to 20 of these individuals developing blood clots within the next two to three days after vaccination, just by chance alone has nothing to do with the vaccine. So the challenge is, when is it possibly something really due to the vaccine above and beyond the background? 
So AstraZeneca got dragged into that at this point, the uh, EMA, the FDA of, the, of Europe, and uh, the WHO have basically said, go ahead, the safety uh, signals uh, that we've seen and the challenges uh, do not merit uh, stopping using the vaccine. So I think at this point, uh, it's just fair to say that uh, this recent dust up with the data monitoring board from the NIH and the portrayal of what their data really means is really unfortunate. And I say that because I think it creates this idea that there should be challenges to all the vaccines. Vaccine confidence is, is eroded when they say, well, wait a minute, if this company's got this problem, this is happening. And so I hope for all the world that we not only get an effective, safe vaccine from them to use for the world, but that also they're able to, in a sense, get their act together so that we don't keep having these unforced errors that cause these public relation nightmares and giving people a sense that maybe we don't know all about these vaccines as we should know. Um, one thing I want to point out on the data monitoring board comment that uh, has happened in the last 24 hours, none of that had to do with safety. It was all about what was the point estimate of the actual protection from the vaccine. And I think that's a really important point to emphasize. It had nothing to do with safety. Uh, the safety issues are the same as they were uh, following the review by the European public health authorities. So just a reminder, everyone, this is a live episode of the Osterholm Update podcast. And if you want us to send us, to send us a question, you can tweet us using the hashtag Osterholm Update Live. We're going to try and get to as many questions as possible. So, Mike, we have a question about vaccines here from Erin on Twitter. She writes, I'm eligible for the vaccine, but I'm young and my state has a major limit for appointments. Should I feel guilty for trying to get one, assuming I might be taking it away from someone more in need, or should I go for it? Well, at this point, we actually have an interesting challenge developing, and I don't think it's what most people perceive. Uh, I'm very concerned about the number of states that are opening up completely all their vaccine eligibility. And I say that not because I don't want people to get vaccinated. I do want those at highest risk to get vaccinated. But I'm really concerned about the fact that many of these states that are opening up are not doing so just out of the goodness of their hearts or the somehow they, they want to help everybody. They actually have vaccine available that should be going to high-risk people in those states that are not getting vaccinated. A recent survey from the Kaiser Health Foundation showed almost 50% of healthcare workers in this country have not yet been vaccinated. A third of U.S. military uh, servicemen and women have not been vaccinated or refused to be vaccinated. We can go study after study looking in the BIPOC community among essential workers. There's been huge challenges getting people vaccinated. And so what a number of states are doing that are opening up are basically saying, well, I don't want to be sitting here with extra vaccine I haven't used, but that won't look good. So let's just open it up to everybody, knowing that we're missing high-risk people. The example I just gave you earlier, looking at the 68 to 69% of people 65 years of age and older who have had one dose or more, that hasn't budged in almost a week and a half. And so, yes, we want to get vaccine to these high-risk people, but it's going to take programs to go and get them, to basically help them understand uh, you know, what we know about these vaccines. We've done a very, very poor job largely describing these vaccines. They were created by Operation Warp Speed with a military presence, and there may have been a political thumb on the approval scale, which wasn't true, but the perception is there. 
And then there are mRNA vaccines, this genetic material. Maybe they are of some concern. All the misinformation that's been out there about uh, uh, side effects, including for pregnant women, uh, causing sterility. You know, we've been up against a lot of the negative messaging. And in every case, we have an incredible story to tell. And so we've got to do a much better job and we've got to reach out to populations that need support. We've got to take the vaccine to the people that can't get to where the vaccine is currently being delivered. And so in this case, if your vaccine's available and it's not being used, I'd tell you to go get it, get it, okay? But if we could target those 65 years of age and older, we'll save more lives as B117 increases. You know, again, I look at those, you know, 17 to 18 million people who are 65 years of age and older who aren't, don't have a drop of vaccine yet. Those people are really increased risk for B117 for serious illness and death. So um, get it. Uh, I hope more states aren't opening up to everybody, not because I don't want you all to get it. I want all, everybody to be vaccinated, but I want the people who are at highest risk of dying, highest risk of serious illness and hospitalization and overrunning our healthcare systems. Those are the people right now that we really need to address. So um, here's another question that we're getting a lot of, and this is from Sarah on Twitter. She writes, what do we know about if we will need vaccines annually for COVID like we do for the flu? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know about these vaccines yet. First of all, number one, how long will they protect? Will it protect for months, for years? What happens when we get re-exposed? Does that then help us uh, have a boost and we don't need to be uh, given a, a booster dose as often? Um, what happens with these variants? Uh, I'm gonna mention here at this point, you know, the P1 variant that we've seen in South America, uh, the B11351 variant we've seen with South Africa and its first identification there. These are all challenges yet that we don't really have answers for. Now, so far, the good news looks like even with these variants, it may uh, have an impact on the immune protection from either vaccine or from natural infection. Uh, while they may not prevent illness, it appears at this point they are still pretty good at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, and deaths but we don't know that yet. We really are going to, over time, be learning about these. So I wish I could tell you what's gonna happen in a year, just stay tuned. And, and, and I think that at this point, uh, this is being carefully studied, it's being looked at. There are people who are already working on the idea of second and third generation vaccines that uh, might very well provide us even additional protection against some of the variants. So um, I wish I knew the answer uh, for now, I think if B117 is all the circulating here in North America to any real degree, uh, we're going to do fine with the vaccines and we could have a summer that could be quite uh, amazing. If we, in fact, see variants of concern that do impact on immunity start to spread and do have some impact on transmission, uh, serious illness, and ultimately on the protection of the vaccine, then um, we're going to have some additional new challenges that we're going to have to address. And for me to tell you right now what those are, I, it would just be irresponsible. So now let's get to another big story within the last few days. And that's been the CDC's decision to, to update its school guidance. The CDC now says that for most elementary and middle schools, uh, for most elementary and middle schools, three feet of distance rather than six is sufficient when masks are worn properly. So uh, Cher, one of our viewers wants to know, what is your take on this decision? 
Well, this is one of my oh my nights, okay? Because this is another oh my issue. Um, I think this was actually a very poor move on the part of CDC, and I do not support it at all. Let me just take a step back. Anyone who has been listening to this podcast over months knows that I've very, very carefully been following and, and in fact, even involved with issues around the safety of children and teachers and staff in schools. And I, for one, was a strong proponent in support of kids, particularly K through eight, going back to school. We saw very little evidence of transmission between kids or kids to teachers or teachers to children. And uh, there was something that almost appeared uh, somewhat innate in terms of the transmission or lack thereof in this age group. And uh, at that point, it was uh, you know, obviously one where we still wanted to make sure we had as many safety features in place as possible. But we, at this point, said, you can go do that. Now, we've all along, many of us, and if you've been listening to this podcast again, you know that, uh, know that aerosols play a very important role in the transmission of this virus. Aerosols, those tiny little droplets that float in the air like cigarette smoke, they travel long, long distances. I never understood even the six-foot issue of saying you were protected. Now to say three feet, that is just unimaginable in terms of what we can anticipate protection. But having said that, if kids aren't transmitting, it doesn't matter whether, you know, an inch away from each other. So what's different now? What's different now is B117. Absolutely challenging. We are seeing substantial transmission in young children uh, right here in Minnesota. We have school-based outbreaks right now where youth sports are playing a huge role in moving it from school to school, town to town, and then spillover from kids to adults. Uh, this is being seen in other areas of the country. You can't handle school safety in the same way with B117 that you did before that time. So it's, it's to me such a major game changer that we have to really reconsider what we're doing. And again, just let's be clear, a face cloth covering, we've shared this with you many times, can reduce your exposure, but only for a limited time. So if I have 50% leakage in and out of a face cloth covering, I may get 50% less dosage for a period of time if the virus is in the air. But as we've shown you time and time again, it's all about dose and dose is time. If you put kids together in rooms for four or five hours, and now you double the number where I'm sure you're not increasing ventilation twofold. You have just created a much more uh, rich place for this virus to be transmitted. So I, I think that this is a mistake. Uh, I think that we will be once with B117 spreading more widely in our communities re-looking at this issue. Uh, I think we're going to need to pivot quickly. And this is not a failure if somebody screwed up. I, three months ago, I was on that side saying, get kids back to school. Losing this school is really unfortunate. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for the lack of learning, socialization, uh, you know, the, the whole psychological development of the child, uh, the issue of parents working. I get all of that. And I know how important that is. But now we have got a game changer in here with B117. And so, again, the kids are not going to transmit any more effectively than adults. But now we're seeing kids transmit. There will be more illnesses in children. Still, 
Um, I believe the majority will be in the minor scale in terms of severity, but at the same time, not all. And most importantly, they will serve as an important source of the virus in our communities. So let's just see what happens in a couple of months. Uh, I just don't want to have to do that same old, same old of pumping the brakes in the car after you wrap it around the tree, which we're really good at doing in this country. We need to respond to the potential for school-based transmission with B117 now. And this is coming from a strong school attendee supporter. So um, here's another question about vaccines, Mike, but, but it's pertinent to the discussion about children in schools. Uh, Amy wants to know when we should know if the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, and I guess the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well, can be expanded to younger children. Uh, studies are ongoing right now in children down to 10 years of age. I expect that results will be available for at least one, if not two of the vaccines by July. And it's very possible by early next fall with school year, we'll actually have vaccines approved down to 10 years of age. Studies are commencing right now down to six month old infants, and those are gonna be further off, but they too are being done right now. And uh, hopefully uh, sometime next fall, early winter, there'll be uh, sufficient data to address that, both from a standpoint of how well they work and their safety. Uh, we don't anticipate it being a problem, but uh, it's really important to get these specific data for these ages. So hold on, folks. Vaccines are coming for the kids. So, Mike, we're uh, getting some questions here about um, basically how we can start living our lives now, you know, among some of the, some of the people out there who are vaccinated. Uh, Ryan on Twitter asks, would it be safe for our fully vaccinated friends and family to meet and hold our four-month-old baby? We are also fully vaccinated and eager to introduce Ellis Maria or Ellis Marie to a select few outside our outside of our bubble. What would be your suggestion? Well, first of all, uh, understanding that the family is fully vaccinated, don't waste a minute, get together. <laughs> I think right now I, I, I couldn't uh, say it any more clearly. Now, if you have children uh, who can't be vaccinated, uh, and have been around anyone who may have been potentially infected, and this is gonna get more challenging with B117, then you've got an issue there. But otherwise, I think get together. Now, when you say you wanna uh, uh, share this precious new gift with friends, uh, again, are they vaccinated or not? If they're not, uh, you can get together the recommendation from CDC right now with one other family uh, and, and do that. Um, I think that we'll have to see over the course of the next few weeks what happens with B117. Uh, but otherwise, I think we should take every opportunity as much as we can to get vaccinated. And so when you get vaccinated, everybody get together. I'm already planning parties that I want to attend or have at my home with multiple couples, all of us vaccinated, no mask, having the time of our life, making up for lost time. And uh, that's where vaccine is such an important part of our response right now. Just a reminder everyone that this is a live episode of the Osterholm Update podcast. And if you wanna send us a question, you can tweet us using the hashtag Osterholm Update Live. And we're trying to get to as many questions as possible. Um, so Mike, here's another question about kind of where we're going in, in the future. Uh, at Suzy K 2021 wants to know if you think we'll be wearing masks and practicing social distancing throughout 2021 and into 2022. I hope not. I hope not. And it's going to all depend on two things. One, will the 
majority of our population get vaccinated. And by majority, I'm talking about 75 plus percent or more. If not, we will continue to see transmission in our communities. It will continue to occur. It'll continue to be a challenge. And these vaccines are not gonna be perfect. Remember 90, 95% protection is really remarkable. That's not 100%. We know already in the frail elderly and those older, we may see even a more significant number of people who will still get infected even after having two doses. So the way we protect ourselves is also the way we help protect the community, get vaccinated. So this is gonna be a challenge to see what happens in the course of the next uh, months in terms of vaccine. The second thing is the variants. You know, if we have a variant of concern that has a ability to compromise the immune protection of these vaccines, then that's gonna create a, a, a totally new uh, public health consideration. And I think at this point, uh, we just don't know what that means. I'm planning on, I'm hoping for uh, life back to a new normal. I so badly want to take my kids to a ball game, feel safe being, uh, you know, in around crowds, et cetera. Uh, we want to get there. But uh, these unknowns, unfortunately, are still in front of us. So, Mike, I'm going to go back to another question about vaccines because we're just getting a lot of questions about them. And this kind of gets to the hesitancy issue. Um, here's a question we have from Kevin, who just got his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Kevin uh, writes, instead of feeling relieved, I feel very anxious that I just put something in my body that could possibly have negative long-term effects. Is there anything you can add to this for me? Are there indications of long-term safety yet? Well, Kevin, you're not alone. A lot of people who don't really fully understand what these vaccines might mean, how, what they're, how they're made, what they do for us, um, uh, have the same feelings you have. So first of all, you're not alone. But the good news is you don't have to feel that way. Um, what this vaccine does for you uh, in terms of, of avoiding getting COVID-19 and potentially dying from it is such a remarkable gift. It's like any of the really critical vaccines that we've had over the course of public health history that have saved millions and millions and millions of lives. That's what this vaccine is doing. So um, congratulations on what you did. Get your second dose when it comes time and uh, feel the confidence and the relief that you've done everything you can at this point uh, to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19. And I would not uh, worry at all about uh, this idea that you've done something harmful to yourself. You've not. You've been a soldier against COVID-19. Uh, we have a question here from Claire on Twitter who asks, will it be safe to travel this summer? This is going to be a, a challenge in the sense that, first of all, travel where? Uh, at this point uh, around the world, uh, we're seeing more of these other variants uh, showing up, the ones that may actually be of concern with regard to the immune protection of the vaccines. We still have to sort all that out. Uh, here in the country, United States, that still may be the case. Uh, we'll see some of that, but I think generally speaking here, uh, until that happens, uh, it's safer to travel. But again, it's not perfectly safe. Remember, these vaccines are almost perfect, but not quite. And so if you're in environments where there's lots of cases, uh, potentially in that environment, going to a big wedding and few people are vaccinated, et cetera, then you may still have a challenge. Uh, so at this point, um, I'd say travel is going to get safer and safer over time as more people get vaccinated. 
uh, and uh, it's almost going to be an individual situation where you go, who you're with, how you get there. Uh, that's going to be the big the big challenge. But I hope we get back to to travel. I have to say personally, for me, uh, it's been a remarkable year. Um, up until last March, a year ago, I would fly 150,000 air miles a year with my work in international areas. And uh, all I've done in the last year is zero air miles and 150,000 hours of Zoom. So um, we, you've talked about the variants a lot on this uh, episode of the podcast, Mike. George on Twitter has a question. Um, have we seen an increase in serious disease with B117? Absolutely. Globally, there's a number of papers that have come out, even two just recently, very this past week, demonstrating the increased occurrence of severe illness associated with these virus, the B117 viruses. So yes, it's, there's no question about the increased severity. And then this is another B117 question um, from, N from MN Gal on Twitter. Uh, she writes, is it realistic to expect cloth masks to prevent the spread of B117 among students and staff? Well, as I addressed earlier, again, remember respiratory protection starts at the uh, in the entire systems level, air ventilation. That's why outdoors is so much better than indoors. And all of the environmental issues you can address to reduce the potential for, for exposure. But then when you get down to respiratory protection at the individual level, and you look at the kind of protection, we've talked about this a number of times, you have the N95 respirators, where you have roughly less than 1% leaky or out of these small particles that could transmit or you could be infected by in terms of that air leaking in and out. Then you get into surgical masks, medical masks. We have increasing data. In fact, a beautiful paper published uh, just recently in the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal showing how you get leakage with surgical masks or medical masks. While they may have 50 to 60% protection, they're not 100%. And then when you get into cloth face coverings, you may get as much as 70% leakage, meaning 30% protection. But that's also with time. We often don't talk about that. Somehow it's as if there's this idea that the number is a static number and it's effective through whether you're there for five minutes or you're there for five hours. If you're in a room with a large number of individuals and multiple people are infected and you're close together, there will be lots of virus that will be in the air and you will, in a face cloth covering, inhale some of it. Or if you are infected, you will exhale some of that virus in your breathing. And you just at this point, you can't get around that. That's just straightforward and simple. So I think that that's why we're gonna be constantly looking at school safety and understanding that uh, you know it was a very different ball game when kids themselves rarely got infected or did they ever transmit the virus when they got infected. This is a different ball game now with B117. And then one last variant question here, Mike. Uh, this is from JM on Twitter. Um, we, you, we've talked a little bit about the California and New York variants on the podcast the last few weeks. Uh, JM wants to know, will the New York variant make the vaccine ineffective? At this point, there's still a lot of questions about the New York variant. Uh, my understanding is in the next uh, day, they're going to actually be uh, addressing this publicly in New York, actually suggesting that the B1526 variant is actually decreasing in its, its uh, occurrence in New York. Uh, and other of, of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, particularly B117, are increasing. Uh, at 
at this point, we I don't have not seen any data, not to say that it doesn't exist or that it hasn't yet been fully obtained, showing a reduction in protection from vaccine with this variant. But it does have the mutation that we're concerned about with that very piece. Uh, does the uh, virus actually evade the immune protection from either vaccination or or, or previous infection and, and immunity related to that? So um, stay tuned. We just don't know at this point. Uh, but this again is another one of those examples of four months ago. You know, we we would never have thought about or anticipated this very situation. So, Mike, as many of our Ostrom update listeners know, this is around the point of each episode where we highlight a pandemic act of kindness. Mike, who is getting the spotlight tonight? Well, this is actually a very interesting, remarkable act of kindness. Um, Akesh uh, wrote to us uh, and in a very, very kind, thoughtful way, really gave this to all of us. This is a gift not only to Sidrap, but it's an act of kindness to everyone on here. And he wrote, Michael, thank you for the wonderful podcast. It's been an amazing resource for me in a time when clarity is scarce. I love your segment where you talk about the increasing amount of light as we head into spring and summer. It is definitely a cause for joy. As a landscape photographer, I wanted to share with you and all of the listeners a few of my favorite moments of light. I hope you enjoyed and thanks again. I have to tell you that the seven photographs that he shared with us are simply remarkable. They're stunningly beautiful and he took all of them. They're gonna be posted on our uh, Osterholm Update website here on this one. You can go take a look at them and I know they will bring joy and, and uh, just oohs and ahs when you see these. So thank you very, very much uh, for, for this gift. And we appreciate it more than I can say. And uh, I urge you all to go take a look at it. And there'll be a link to those uh, photos in the YouTube live stream uh, for all, all you who are watching. Um, so uh, we're, we're just about near the end of our hour here, Mike. So uh, your, your closing thoughts tonight. Well, again, thank you very much for being with us. Um, it's gone very quickly. Uh, we never have enough time to really discuss all the issues. Uh, I hope there's been some information shared tonight that can be helpful to you. Uh, I just want to say at the outset again, uh, you know, we're getting close to that magic moment of having adequate vaccine for everyone. And uh, if B117 is the only virus we're really up against in any meaningful way, we can see a much, much brighter day. And so hang in there. Again, I can't say this anymore clearly, no one wants to be the person to die three days before they're scheduled to get their vaccine. So let me leave you with uh, a couple of things. First of all, I wanna go back and uh, urge all of you, if you haven't looked at last week's podcast, to go look at the Mended Heart Pendant that's made by jeweler Karen Jacobson here in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, this is an incredibly beautiful uh, piece in honor of all that's been done to respond to COVID-19. She specifically made it just for that. And all the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds are going to the Frontline Families Fund, that fund that we helped start to uh, take care of the families of healthcare workers who have died of COVID-19. Uh, so I urge you to go back to last week's podcast. And if you haven't looked at this pennant, you have to. Uh, it is remarkably beautiful and it's so meaningful. So let me just uh, uh, close tonight in how I started. I talked about how I went from a letter to an email 
to uh, a podcast. I've now been brought into the modern world of podcasts. Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Corey. Um, Chris, thank you to you. Thank you to Angela Ulrich, who also uh, is one of the very critical members of our podcast team. But I'm going to go back and be an old man. I'm going to go back and, and uh, reminisce a bit. I'm going back to the letter. I actually read on September uh, on uh, September 17th, on the 24th episode, Long Haulers, I closed with a song by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. It uh, <clears throat> was a song that just struck me immediately. It's so beautiful. And it was actually the title track for his new album. This was actually uh, recorded on September 10th of 2020. Uh, it was released on October 23rd. And uh, it is such a meaningful piece to me. And it says everything about why I again do these podcasts and, and what I get from them from you. So here it is, Letter to You by Bruce Springsteen Sting and the E Street Band. Neath a crowd of Mongol trees, I pulled the bothersome thread, got down on my knees, grabbed my pen and bowed my head, tried to summon all that my heart finds true and send it in my letter to you. Things I found out through hard times and good, I wrote them all in ink and blood, dug deep in my soul and signed my name true and sent it in my letter to you. In my letter to you, I took all my fears and doubts. In my letter to you, all the hard things I found out. In my letter to you, all that I found true. And I send it in my letter to you. I took all the sunshine and rain, all my happiness and all my pain, the dark evening stars and the morning sky of blue. And I sent it in my letter to you. I sent it in my letter to you. In my letter to you, I took all my fears and doubts. In my letter to you, all the hard things that I found out. In my letter to you, all that I found true. And I sent it in my letter to you. I sent it in my letter to you. For the last year, every week I send you a letter. I've tried my best to do it in a way that can be helpful, that uh, surely I know can be challenging, but also allows us all to come together and respond to this pandemic, not just the virus, but all the other aspects of the pandemic. It's why the acts of kindness have been so memorable, so important. It's why we remember every time we have a podcast, those deaths are not numbers, they're people. They're somebody's mom and dad, they're somebody's brothers and sisters, they're somebody's aunt and uncle. And unfortunately, in some cases, are some people's children. Um, that's what this is about. This is our letter. And I send this letter to you. Thank you very much for joining us again tonight. Chris, thank you, as always. Uh, thank you to the SIDRAP podcast crew. And most of all, as I've dedicated this uh, evening session to you, the podcast family, thank you very much. Be safe, be kind, and know that we're going to get through this together. Thank you. And thanks again to everyone who turned into this live episode of the Ostrom Update. And, and to those who sent us questions. And special thanks to podcast producers Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.
for making all this happen. We'll be back next week with another episode. Stay safe, everyone.